Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Mireille Giuliano, who is the author of French Women Don't Get Fat, three other blockbuster best-selling books, Women Work and the Art of Savoir-Faire, Business Sense and Sensibility, French Women for All Seasons, and the French Women Don't Get Fat cookbook. She is considered the high priestess of French lady wisdom and is recognized as an ambassador of France and its art of living. Many, many women turn to her for guidance and mentorship. She was president and CEO of the champagne company Veuve Clicquot. She grew the company from 1% to more than 25%. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be discussing her book, Women Work and the Art of Savoir-Faire, Business Sense and Sensibility. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Mireille Giuliano, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Bonjour, Kim. Well, you know, that's a long introduction. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're not going to do what I did at a tennis tournament. Somebody gave me an incredible introduction, and I served the ball, and it went about six courts over it. I accidentally hit it on the rim of the racket, but I know you won't do that today. <laughs> well, actually, I... I you know, now I have to come up to all this. What a tool. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you won't have to stretch very far. First of all, thank you for this book. Well, thank you for interviewing me. That's very kind of you. You talked about so many things that people are feeling and maybe thinking, and many that many of us don't notice that you notice and have been enculturated with. And I think the first thing I wanted to talk about was your emphasis in the book on enlightened self-interest. I'd like you to explain this to the audience. What is enlightened self-interest and why is it important to you? Actually, I'm glad you, you caught it because it's, it's, it shows that you really read the book because to me, in many ways, it's one of the most important uh, items in the book. And, you know, people think enlightened self-interest, that, that's being selfish. And not at all. What, what it is is that... Um, it's creating your own luck and opportunities and making the most of them. Now, you don't learn that or know that when you are, you know, 18 or 22 or 25. But that's really what my 25 years in business taught me as the most important um, step and, and value and thinking, you know, in enjoying work, finding work that you're passionate about it, but also knowing what to do, because in many ways, you know, we, we go through recessions, we have challenges, and but I mean, things pass, and, and at the end of the day, you have to find each of us, and you know, there's no one-size-fits-all, so we each have to do that inner search, and know and have a good uh, understanding of what our skills are, what our competences are, what our weaknesses are, and see what opportunities they are and where we fit and grab them when they come. Of course, you know, that takes a little courage and risk, but at the end of the day, that's, that's really um, a very important action that a woman or anybody actually, I have many men reading my books and thanking me for, for helping them or said, you know, I wish I'd read your book uh, 10 years ago. I would have better know how to negotiate my salary or how to get out of that company, et cetera, et cetera. But the self enlightened self-interest is really uh, crucial. There's another thing, which is that so many of us view self-interest as being a bad thing. Now, women often think self-interest is a bad thing because we're not used to taking care of ourselves and concerning ourselves with our self-interest. We're always taking care of others. It's actually a sign of, and, and of course, we've brought up in, in many countries, I've, I've just been back from China, Japan, and many countries in Asia where, you know, it's even worse than the Western world, uh, where women are, are insecure. And um, it's because of a sense of a lack of confidence or um, no sense of uh, security that we see that as selfish, but it is not selfish at all. You gave the context for it, but what distinguishes enlightened self-interest from traditional self-interest? Well, it's because, you know, as I said, we, we are all different, all unique, and it's, it's really lining up what really interests you in life. And if you have that opportunity and, and you're ready for it, 
is grabbing it. And, you know, men do it all the time and they don't define it as such. But, of course, they have been brought up in a different way and they know how to, you know, pass a colleague or um, and don't feel anything about it. And I'm I'm not saying you need to be aggressive or mean or manipulative or calculating, but it's just being aware of what's out there for you, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, I talk about the, the big four anchors in life, and um, they're all important, but the last one, the you, um, the me factor, is what's important, because it's coming back to my kind of holistic approach that I talk about in all my books, and if you are bien dans sa peau, if you're comfortable in your skin, you will get a good job. And if you have a good job um, and you, you're healthy and happy and, uh, you know, committed and, and rewarded by your work and passionate and enthusiastic about it, it will show. It will reflect upon your, you know, everyone you meet from your um, colleagues but also your friends and people you don't know and your spouse and your kids, and they will notice, you know. I mean, uh, there's nothing worse than a, a grumpy employee, employee because um, that rubs in every little aspect of their life. I mean, look today, a good example is the nastiness of people on the Internet. All these people are really, uh, you, you have to feel sorry for them. They're, they're unhappy, they're frustrated. So they get their, they think they get their frustration out by being mean or telling lies about other people or judging other people. And if you have that kind of um, enlightened self-interest at heart, uh, it really, it really um, goes behind just your job. It goes towards your your equilibrium, your uh, balance. Some people don't like the word balance, and I would say it doesn't matter what you call it. You call you can call it, uh, you know, life, work, fit, or whatever it is that makes you a more uh, stable and, as a result, happier person. I noticed that you took a lot of care to talk about the nuances of how electronic communication is impinging on our lives to the point where we're so accessible to cell phones and the computers. And not only you stress the need for balance, but you also talk about the fact that we need to unplug. Yes, it's it's actually a growing concern. Uh, I've just done an extensive tour through Asia, as I said before, and also Europe. I was back, you know, in Paris, in Amsterdam, in various countries, um, cities in Europe. And young people... Um, are really having a hard time because our brain wasn't set to be kind of multitasking 24-7. And yet uh, those little machines make it sound like, you know, we've got to answer right away. We've got to do this. We've got to be on this. We have to, you know, when we cross the street, we have to answer it. When we are at the beach, we are, when we are in a restaurant. And it's mostly not necessary. And unless you have a job, of course, like, uh, you know, a firefighter or a doctor or a nurse or some kind of work where, uh, you know, your presence or your answer is crucial. But most of us in business, you know, somebody can wait until, you know, a few hours later. And so you don't need to be after these things. I mean, I notice just people on the plane, you know. They, they're constantly looking, constantly thinking that. So you wonder, is that a sign of self-importance or are they already addicted? And if they are, it's unhealthy. And I met a lot of young people, including in Paris, especially women, complaining that their husbands, since they got this little, you know, blackberry, <laughs> um, are not, you know, are not focused and come home and they're, you know, they're just home and they check it and they don't pay attention to the table, um, um, to dinner at the table and what the kids say and all that, of course. So it's creating a lot of stress. And when you're stressed, you're not at your best. You know, some stress is good, but these kind of, um, uh, of machine actually are very dangerous in making your life more stressful. So you have to take a step and find, and again, you know, there's no one size fits all. But to me, for example, um, 
I, I just want to answer, uh, look at my email over the weekend, you know. Now, of course, I don't have, you know, uh, um, I'm not a CEO anymore and I don't have to juggle with crisis and all that. But even then, you know, it's like, what did we do before when we didn't have all these gadgets for the weekend, you know? We can wait. I mean, nothing, is, it's not going to go away and it's not going to be the end of the world in 99.9% of the cases. So we have to make a choice where to stop. And, you know, like I, I found it extremely rude when you go and take someone to a restaurant. And uh, I was with a man, a businessman recently in New York, and he must have gone to his cell phone like 12 times during lunch. And I almost felt like saying, look, you know, if, you, if we can't even finish a sentence and discuss what you want to discuss, wh why did you take two hours of my time? You could have send me an email or call me from your office. But there's no point to spend it at lunch because you're not there. You're not with me. And, uh, you know, I really, I really don't want to waste my time like that. It's a waste of time to me. So much has been accepted that people, I mean, you see young people online in, or not even young people, lots of people in supermarket, in shops, and, you know, they're the cashier and they chit-chat on the phone, and there's a big line after that, and nobody cares, and it's, it's, I find it extremely rude, so we don't have a kind of new etiquette for how to behave, and a lot of it is, has become, well, it's permissive, you know, but people are reacting. Look, when the TGV uh, first had to deal with these people, um, people starting in France uh, you know, rebel rebelling because, like, you don't want to hear somebody's conversation. And most of the time, they're really not <laughs> heavy and crucial conversation um, on, the, on the train. So now, you know, you can't call or receive uh, on the train. You have to go out in, at the end, uh, and you have some train uh, uh which are, which are reserved for people who want to use their cell phone. But basically, you know, it's not allowed. And it's sad that, that now we are becoming a society where we have to go to so many forbidden things. Uh, it's silly, you know, it's backwards. I mean, if people had any sense of, of being civilized and, and being um, compassionate and have empathy and, and polite, I mean, the, the basic laws of courtesy, you know, you don't do these things. So uh, there's a lot of education to, to be done and a lot of um, sensi sensibility, sensibility. <laughs> yes. that is not there, and it's unfortunate. I so appreciated that you brought this up in your book because I complain to many people about this when I go to a restaurant and I sit down, and most people talk very loud when they're on their cell phone, yes. and they have no awareness of it. Mm -hmm. Even I was getting a massage a month ago, a guy took a cell phone into the massage place and started talking. And I walked up very nicely and I said, I'm very sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but I really don't want to hear your conversation. I want to relax and get my massage. Yeah. Can you please whisper or text message the person? But some shops and some retail places, they're so hungry for business, they will enforce no courtesy, no etiquette. It's amazing. I've seen it also, as you talk about, in clothing stores, cashiers will just get on the cell phone. Yeah. Restaurants, it's appalling mm -hmm. what goes on in restaurants. And because people also speak louder than when someone's just yes, sitting there. Much louder. Many companies are now starting training sessions for service because we are becoming more and more, you know, at least in the developed countries, a society of service, service jobs, but they are done so poorly. Uh, because of these um, equipment <laughs> that were supposed to help us and help us in many ways, but also do a lot of things that, that are not correct and that, that are not good and that annoy a lot of people. And so um, they need to be trained. You know, they need to be told you, you just can't do that. You know, the customer is king and you can't just be on the phone calling your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your mom or whatever to, to say, you know, things that could wait until the end of the day. The other thing is there's some type of developed culture that says that someone's device is like their bubble, their reality, but when they bring it into any environment, mm -hmm. that environment becomes their house, their bubble. 
and is just assimilated into their bubble, and this is subconscious. You know, it comes from the fact that um, uh, it's a contradiction because in one way, you know, people, uh, humans need to connect, and that's a great way of connecting. But on the other hand, um, how do you connect and how do you prioritize and how do you uh, live by, you know, respecting the people around you? And, you know, when I'm on a train and I, I hear this, you know, 18-year-old girl calling her boyfriend six times, telling him, you know, where, where we are between Marseille and Paris so that he can get dinner ready. And it's like, you know, enough already. But you can't say that. People can get very aggressive or, you know, start a fight or think that it's totally normal or don't care if you hear what they say, whatever they say. And so it's it's a no man's land and it's it's gonna be very difficult to to draw some kind of code so that at least there could be some kind of, you know, general respect for for the people around you. I think it's a great mistake that airplanes are allowing people to talk on their cell phones now. They are? I know Virgin Atlantic was thinking about it, and I'm hearing that they're dealing with the FAA to allow people. Oh, no. And I'm I just, I'm dreading it. Yeah. I am totally it's dreading it. On a plane where it's already, you already have so many noises, it will be terrible. Uh, but, you know, I just came back from France two days ago, and, and, uh, at airports, you know, uh, when, when you leave, uh, the New York airport, you have signs. You can use your, your, um, cell phone until you're out of the airport, which I think is a great thing. Um, because uh, a few years ago, you know, you were still on board and people were trying to call their drivers or whatever, or, and it was like nonstop. And now you have to wait. And even at customs, you know, if they said if they catch you using your cell phone, you can get a fine. So I think, you know, uh, codes are, are coming up, but they're a little bit slow at coming up, and things change so fast. Uh, I don't know how we can catch up with all this, but it's it's extremely annoying and extremely stressful to a lot of people, and I think it's unfortunate that uh, we have to, you know, stress what seems to be like just basic uh, courtesy. And speaking of courtesy, I loved it that you wrote extensively about table manners and setting the table, which I think a lot of us have forgotten, Mireille. Not even the setting of the table, but table manners, I think, have been forgotten. I also think they're probably more highly stressed in Europe than here in the United States. Am I wrong? Actually, you know, I I, I, um, I had the example with my company because uh, very early on, I realized that some of the young people we had, especially in sales, were out and taking customers to restaurants, didn't know what what was appropriate to do where from you know ordering the wine to to uh, behaving at the table to giving signals to uh what to order and all these little things and so we we had this uh kind of program in our sales meeting and i remember my uh french boss came once and thought it was like oh my god you know americans are barbarians and i didn't <laughs> say anything and the next year uh, we had to take a few French, um, you know, 22 years old to 30 years old. And guess what? It was the same thing. What so happened? He came and on purpose I invited them to a restaurant. And, you know, this French kid, totally, you know, well-educated and very, very good at work, started talking with his mouth full and, and spitting all this, you know, across the table. And my boss looked at me like, oh, my God. And I said to him, yeah, I think, you know, we could, we could apply uh, this program, not, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And it's actually, you know, um, it, the message went across. And, you know, he was traveling a lot and saw it in different countries. And it's just because, you know, these kids were not, taught the proper way or, you know, didn't think it was important to, to care or to do it right. And so now the group has a training session where you learn from, you know, how to tie your, your um, how to uh, knot the ties, to uh, how to uh, order in a restaurant, how to behave with your guests, how to write thank you notes, all these little things that are not taught in business school. So you have, you know, tremendously bright people with MBAs and all kind of uh, grad um, 
degrees degrees who don't know the basic about uh, how to behave in society because maybe they grew up with you know TV dinners and their parents worked hard or their parents didn't think about it or know about it and and it's it's very very important and uh, I, I see the difference in our group I mean uh, even in the store too you know uh, the the teaching how to serve I mean service in France is is way way, way behind the U.S. And in stores, you know, you can be ignored or treated like garbage by a salesperson. And now you go into the group's, you know, stores and they treat you really well because they've learned that, you know, you are there and they are at your service. They're paid for that. And there's no excuse. And they even send people to check, you know, in secret <laughs> to see how they behave and they're graded. So it's very important because today, you know, if you don't have that, um, eventually you're out of business. <laughs> I also really enjoyed the part about how to handle the napkins, believe it or not, and the silverware <laughs> and Share that one part about where you place the napkins. It depends whether you're done eating and whether you're just setting the table. Share a little about that. It's a nuance, but it's cute. I like it. It's common sense, really, when you think about it. Because you've used your napkin and, and let's say you... First of all, you know, if you're received in a French home... It's hard, but it's an old tradition. You know, you don't get up like people do in America, you know, to go to the bathroom 50 times. You you wait until the end of the meal. But now it's be, becoming more relaxed and, you know, with globalization, it happens. Let's say you, you have to go out or you want to get up to settle the bill, not in front of your guest. And, you know, you get up at the end of the meal. You don't put your dirty tablecloth on the table. You put it on your chair, and if you have a good waiter, he will, you know, replace it. Uh, but it's something that people just don't know what to do with it, you know, and, and yet uh, if you think about it, it doesn't belong to the table, you know, anymore. A clean napkin belongs to the table. After that, it doesn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> and that when you're actually setting a place, at the yes. table, you're not using paper napkins, if you can no. help it. Yeah, I mean, it makes such a big difference. For every day, of course, you use the thick paper napkin, if, but uh, our French family have a, you know, their little uh, napkin ring in a family, and you use it, you know, for a day or two, and you put it back in a, somewhere. But if you are entertaining or if you are in a restaurant, of course, you want a, a real napkin, a tablecloth napkin. I mean, that already sets the tone. You know, we're not eating at McDonald's. We're going to switch for just a minute. Can you talk a little bit about the fact that in Europe, vacations are given at least six weeks to employees about that whole mentality difference between the American one or two week paid vacation time and the French and the European view of this? I think it's really important. Well, it's, it's, it's coming back to the, the quality over quantity. And in many ways, um, uh, you might say, well, six weeks vacation, we need that much. But it's, it's actually proven by survey that uh, surveys have been made to show that, you know, a week vacation is not enough in a year to recharge the battery. And many Americans, uh, who even have two weeks, I mean, when I had my staff, some wouldn't even take the two weeks. And to me, this was like, wow. And we need it. You know, today it's proven that you need more time to recharge and you need time to unwind. And and actually, you're better off when you come back. You're more relaxed. You've you've really had some time with, you know, with your family or friends to, to do other things. You even might be able to think better and clearer and have better ideas. So there are a lot of pluses at having a nice vacation. And you really have to sort of break from that routine of going to work every day. And you can't break that routine in three days. People who tell me, oh, you know, all I need is a couple of days and I'm back. It's like, you know, people who said, I only need three hours of sleep. Well, you don't. And now, too, you know, surveys have shown um, with, you know, great hospital making, you know, taking the records and how people 
deal with the lack of sleep and it it catches on you and you need you need you know six to eight hours sleep period if you don't you know your body will will be not uh at maximum um optimum um um, expression, you know, and uh, so it it has repercussion on on your life, on your health, on many things. And vacation is what I talk about in the fourth anchor, the me time, the you time. You know, the the taking whatever it takes to relax, but not only once a year for vacation, but on a daily basis. You know, whether it's five minutes or half an hour or whatever. It's you know, again, one size doesn't fit all, but. Uh, for me, uh, I remember when I was working and it was, you know, a lot of pressure and a lot of seeing a lot of people, sometimes on meetings and decisions to make. And sometimes after two, three hours, I was exhausted and I just, you know, go to my office and close the door for a few minutes and take a few deep breaths and do a few movements and, and felt, you know, renewed again. So you have to find what's good for you and, and what, makes you um, relax and recharge because it's really vital. Do you think that in America, given your international experience, that American companies or companies that are based here could begin instituting a four to six week vacation time? Or do you think they're going to feel like they could lose their employees or they'll lose too much money paying them to leave that amount of time? How do you deal with that concern? Well, it's, you know, some, many companies now give two weeks and then, you know, if you stay like five years, in our company when you'd stay five years, you had, uh, or three years, you had another week and then after five years, you had four weeks. And, you know, I think more and more companies should do that and some are trying to do that because there's also, you know, high turnover and performance and efficiency is not, is not always what companies would expect them to be. So people are realizing that. I, I was, uh, I'll give you an example, if I may. I was invited by a very famous investment banking firm at their London headquarters a couple of years ago, uh, before I wrote the business book, but it was telling to me. They hadn't told me what was the purpose, but they were doing a, a weekend for their women uh, employees. And actually, it was mostly women, and they were traders. And there were women who had been trained mostly at the London Business School, and they came from all over the world, and they were aged maybe 25 to 32. And so we were there at Send in the countryside uh, of England, in a beautiful you know, hotel with golf club, golf course, etc. And I was the first speaker. And I talk about my, my French woman, uh, Don't Get Fat and French Woman Fall Seasons book about lifestyle balance and health and holistic approach. And, and, um, you know, I was introduced by, there were a few men. Uh, one of them was the chair of that company in England. And he introduced me and, of course, gave all the background about, you know, me being at, at the time I was still a CEO and blah, blah, blah. And so I gave my little talk and when the Q&A came, uh, these women started saying, well, you're a CEO, you know, and raising business questions about about me time. And they said, you know, we don't have the time. I'm wondering and all that. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I am a person who walks the walk and talks the talk. I mean, you, what you hear is what you get, you know. So I said to them, well, I, well obviously, you know, many of them, didn't have a family life because they went to work at 5 in the morning, came back at 11. Or if they had, you know, their husband grew tired of them. If they had children, they couldn't see their children. Many ended up in divorce after two, three years. And, you know, like question after question, I said, wow, you sound like you're burned out. <laughs> and I said to them, you know, you have to make the decision. Maybe, maybe you're in the wrong job. Maybe, you know... Uh, what I said in the business book, you can't have it all at once, you know, so you have to make some choices. And about two weeks later, I had six emails of among those 200 women who had left their job. Wow. And I was like, oh, I hope I'm not creating unemployment. All that. <laughs> you know, it dawned on me that I was not doing anything you know, what's the point? I'm working all these hours. I make a lot of money, but I don't have the time to spend it. I don't have 
quality time with my family. I've ruined my marriage. My kids are annoyed at me. I'm unhappy at work. You know, there's got to be something better than that. And they went into totally different fields. And, you know, to conclude that this guy was, uh, who, who, uh, uh, had talked to me during the meal that he would like me to do these seminars in another country never invited me back because I think <laughs> here he was trying to, re- you know, use this three day weekend as a retainer. He didn't get it, you know. It's not over three days that you are going to get these burnout people to recharge. Most of them couldn't care less about golf. They didn't even like to play golf. So, you know, so yes, they were for two days away and, you know, not working and having massage and being in the countryside. But this was not, he, he didn't, they didn't get it. So now I read that this very specific company is doing a lot to retain women. And I'm very glad. That's great. That's really, really great. I'll bet they thank you with their lives and their they families. Did. And many have seen some back because I've been, you know, four or five times at the London Business School and, uh, uh, some did amazing things, you know, and, and um, some are entrepreneurs, some are totally in different fields and uh, have a much happier life. So, you know, you have, you have to make that kind of know thyself inner search about what's important to you because, you know, we, we are what we eat, but we are, we are also what we do and, and we spend a lot of hours working every day. So, it's important to to like what you do, but also to feel that uh, you're not like working, you know, 12 hours a day. I think it's also interesting that you write about leadership and management. But one of the things we as women a lot of times do is we absorb the paradigm of success that we think we have to model. And if that includes workaholism and being away from family and not getting sleep and all this stuff that is really unhealthy that a lot of men have also bought into and absorbed. But for women, it's even a worse disaster if we have kids and husbands and significant others. And it's a multifaceted disaster of galactic proportion. Yes, I agree with you. Because, you know, the word success, is, as I said in the book, is a, is a word I don't like. Because success like power, uh, ruin you. And you see it in politics. You know, politicians, why do people go into politics? Is mostly uh, to get the power. And, and it, it happens in a very subtle way. You know, at the beginning, you might be very good, but eventually it, it catches up with you. And that power game goes, and, and you feel that you're important, and you feel you have to be successful, and, but what is it? You know, Andy Wall said it well, you know, 15 minutes of success and you move on. <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously, but take your work seriously and, and do what is necessary to live within that parameters and, and have a decent, you know, decently balanced life. And you can do that. Work and life balance is not easy, but it is doable. It's just that it needs an investment of your time and your thinking and your narrowing down to what what really counts for you. And success is just, it's an empty word. What is success? I mean, you know. But managing your expectations is, is what it's all about, you know, in work and in life. You write extensively about one of the critical things in business is having really good communication skills as a yeah. major, major asset and skill base. Sometimes more important than being able to do a good PowerPoint presentation, although you were very good at doing PowerPoint presentations as well as you have good communication skills. But I thought it was incredibly insightful how sometimes you cannot have the other types of skills. But if you have good communication skills, you're a major asset in a lot of industries and in most circumstances. Yes, I'm, I'm, you know, that's my personal view, but I am convinced. Uh, and more, more so even since I wrote the book that communication skills in business are key. More than intelligence, more than knowledge, more than experience. And education opens the door, but the ability to communicate orally, in writing or visually is something they don't teach you in, in school again, you know. And uh, women are, are better than men at communicating properly, generally speaking. 
But communications is just more than writing, you know, a good report or making a good PowerPoint presentation. Communication is about greetings. It's about writing thank you notes. It's about conversation, telling stories. It's about networking. It's about uh, visiting your staff in their office and trying to find out if they are happy or what's on their mind or what they like to do. It, it's, it's sometimes obvious. It's sometimes subtle. Communication is a huge part of um, doing a job well in most fields. You seem to be very good also in picking up nonverbal communication. Yes, that's very important, you know, and, and especially in, in, in societies where we deal a lot, in, you know, in Europe, particularly France and Italy, where we, we do a lot with our, with our uh, we talk constantly with our hands and, you know, the eye contact, all these messages, uh, you know, that's why you need to stay focused. And, and in our world, you know, people are not focused because they're trying to look at their cell phone or they're thinking of something else and they are multitasking constantly. So to be a good communicator, you need to be focused. You need to be there and you need to make sure the people who is, you know, across from you gets it, that you're really with that person in that moment. That's so, so, so important. And not enough people think it's important and some, not enough people know how to deal with it to, um, to really focus on it. Thich Nahan calls it being present with yeah. the person the that moment. you're with. Yeah. Exactly. You also shared that women like stories, are very good storytellers, and a lot of men are trained to, like, cut to the chase in business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit about your experience of that. Well, it it was hard for me at the beginning, one, being, you know, French, and two, uh, liking to make analogies, and also sometimes, you know, in a meeting when it's tense, and a little story, a little anecdote really sort of... Um, uh, relaxes everybody, and I think if you if you handle it properly, people will recognize that it is refreshing, you know. But we we have to take into account that you know we are in a man's world, and until women rule the world, and I hope it's it will be the 21st century, we we're getting there in terms of number anyway. Um, you know, we have to follow their rules, and their rules are not our rules. So we have this ambivalence, and we have to fit into a world uh, made of rules that are not our rules. So it's it's sometimes tricky. But I think in a, in a company, and I must say in our company, we had uh, a majority of women, so guys learned to put up with our stories and anecdotes. And, and uh, you know, after a while, it was a pretty good atmosphere, and they started telling stories as well. So, you know, humor is so important, and many of those stories are, um, you know, about humor, and uh, it's, it's critical uh, in the workplace, you know. You don't want to have people with heavy faces all the time, it's, and it's, it's liberating in a way. I like that you mentioned the issue of gossip and what you recommend to people about refraining from doing it and the differences between how men and women handle the frustration. Yeah, for me that was hard because I was brought up with very strong values, um, especially, you know, like when some somebody tells you to keep something confidential, to keep it confidential. I mean, I had stuff that, you know, they were personal business that men and women in my office over 20 years told me that I, would, I wouldn't even tell my husband because <laughs> I was told, you know, keep it for yourself. And I know that's hard to do for a lot of people. But the gossip part is, is often, you know, I learn it the, 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 the bad way in a way because when you have a lot of... Uh, people from different age groups and people from different cultures and, you know, people who don't get along together. And it, it becomes, it can become a sore point. And at some point, then you have to interfere and put some order in all that. And so uh, it often starts from gossip. And uh, I, you know, I had a very strong right arm and uh, we both agree that this was key in, having a company with 
good employees and protecting those who are being gossiped, gossiped at. You know, it's like, come on, cut the chase. I wonder if a company had a place for people to anonymously unload their issues, <laughs> like an anonymous box or something. Yeah, but, well, we, we did that. We, you know, one of uh, the motto of our company was like, you know, y- you're not in a jail, so if you don't like it, you know, it's op- it's free. You can walk out. You know, but don't, uh, you know, we had guidelines, we became a group, and then we became a company with shareholders, and things, you know, move. Life, as I said, is living in stage and, and, and phases, and so you have to adjust to that. It was hard for me as well to, you know, I started with a company that was, my boss was accountant and countess. It was a family operation, and when I left, it was this huge group, you know, the number one luxury group in the world with 50 companies and amazing number of procedures and rules and things like that. I mean, many of them I didn't like either. But, you know, if, if, you, if you're unhappy about it and it really bothered you that much, then, you know, go and look for something else. We would tell that to these people, you know, and uh, we had a few who got the message. It's like, okay, you know, but don't, don't start this, you know, we, we don't need this. We don't have the time for it. It's, it's really not constructive. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a company policy. We didn't, you know, it's a headquarter decision, and we have to live with it. So if you can't live with it and, you know, don't discourage those who agree to live with it, just, just go, go and see elsewhere, you know, and... Uh, you know, I have to say that uh, more often than not, uh, the people who left and went somewhere else um, were, le- were unhappy there too, you know. So it's, it shows that there's a trend in the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of rotten apple you have in any company, in any group, you know. And it's about once, one of the first seminars I took because I didn't know anything about about HR, and we didn't have the money when we started the company to have personnel, so we were hiring, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I've never done that. How do you interview? How do you, you know, nobody had taught me that. So I took this seminar in New York, and i never forget this very brilliant guy who was giving these two-day weekend seminar, and he said, he said, you know, um, in, in, in a company, there are, you know, great people, there are average people, and there are a few rotten apples. Uh, the average is about one in ten, and he said, "You know, when that person is spotted, it's better that that person goes." And I, I must say that in my twenty, almost thirty years in business, uh, I found this pretty correct. So these are the people who would go on the internet and and just like, you know, use terrible language and said amazing things about people that that are not even don't even exist, you know, but it releases them and they live with that and you, you can't you can't change them. So let them go somewhere else. Can we talk a little bit about clothing? Sure. And <laughs> I think it's much more complex for women than it is for men. And I want you to explain why. Yeah. I think we should touch on it because you wrote about it extensively in your book. Women work in the art of savoir faire, business sense and sensibility. Yeah. But without giving too much away, can you share a little bit about why it's more complex for a woman to get dressed in the workplace or if she has her own company than it is for a man to get dressed? Well, because, you know, unfortunately, we're judged by our appearance. And for a guy, you know, you need a, a different tie every day. But what you wear is your suit and shirt and shoes and, and they all look alike, like little penguins, you know. <laughs> And for us women, it's it's difficult. And I have to say it, I've been shocked through my business life to see some women coming to work or coming to interviews dressed like they were going to, you know, uh, a, a nightclub or dress what I would say, you know, not uh, in an appropriate manner and sometimes subtle, but, you know, you don't, at least in our company, you know, again, it depends what kind of company you work. There are lots of companies today where it's very casual. And uh, I think we've gone over the worst about these, this famous or infamous casual Friday. It was a disaster in New York. You, you would have young people <laughs> come in, in uh, you know, in, in shoes, uh, beach, uh, what are they called, uh, tongs, you know. 
And and for us, you know, it was hard to explain that, look, we can have a very important journalist or customer or actually our chairman show up without telling us, and it's Friday. How would you like to, to, to how do you feel, you know, if it sees you like that? So for us, in many ways, and for, I think for luxury companies, again, you have to you have to walk the walk, you know, and it means you have to be presentable. Now, it doesn't mean you have to wear, you know, a pantsuit, although I, I must I must say thank you to Yves Saint Laurent, who was the first designer who uh, understood about, you know, you can be feminine in pants and created the pantsuits because they're beautiful and, you know, you avoid all the looking at your legs and looking, all these things. And other other than that, you know, don't don't come with a blouse that you know is open so that you can see down your nostril. I mean, it, it's it's again common sense. Uh, wear what's appropriate for where you work, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to have designer clothes. You don't have to have fancy clothes, but have some basic um, items that will not embarrass you wherever you go. And uh, so I gave, you know, it's a business book, but I, I, I have a menu. I talk about table manners. I talk about how to get dressed because because I've seen, not I, I couldn't say I've seen it all, but I've seen a lot that's <laughs> not so good and made me want to, to say that it's a reminder, but if you don't know it, you know, these are the things that you just, can't wear when you work for such and such company. What do you say to a woman who says, look, if I dress suggestively and I'm being interviewed by men and being hired by men, it's better for me. What do you say to a woman who says that to you or thinks that way? Well, actually, I think I, I said somewhere in the book that, you know, when when we interview people, uh, several several of us would see them and they're all men except me. And when we had a case like that, men would laugh. And I remember once I had a woman who had very, you know, was very competent and had all the skills, and I said, I want to hire her. And my CFO, you know, comes and says, hey, this woman, did you see how she dressed? And, you know, there was a ha-ha-ha. And, you know, he had a point. But I said, well, you know, we can, we've taught a lot of people how to dress better. We had salespeople who, you know, when they came for the interview, I said, oh, my God. And, and then in, in very subtle way. And also, you know, it rubs on you when they see their colleague dressing well and having a nice tie. I remember one of my great pleasures was, was going to top restaurants or top stores across the U.S. and, and, because we had local staff all around the country and, and having, you know, an owner or chef or saying to me or, or food and room beverage director saying, you know, your staff is always so nicely dressed. And I, I felt, you know, proud because I think it's very important. You, you know, you, you've got to walk the walk. I think when women first began the entrance into business, and I don't know about Europe, but I know in the United States, it was like this transition of even women's business clothes were very masculinized. Yes. And there's still a lot of that where it's either social or it's very masculinized still. And I'm not sure here in America, and I'd like to know what you think about this, if that other realm, that other style has come in yet where it's still feminine, but it's professional. But it seems like one's on the right, one's on the left. In other words, there's not the yeah. style yet. Do you find that here in America, or is that just me, the way I'm no, looking at No, I, I totally agree with you. Actually, you know, I don't have a perfect answer, but but my experience and my looking at, at things, and because on my website, and I, I do a lot of about fashions and uh, fashion, and there's great fashion design in America, but I think... Uh, you know, it is a country of extremes, and unfortunately, you have the two extremes. It's either uh, what what we call quincy, you know, stuffy, and you know, this kind of uh, uh, I, I remember Tight. seeing them in the subway. You know, those law firms going, uh, lawyers going with these very strict, you know, navy blue suits, but not well cut, and 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 kind of looking like men, you know, and you don't have to dress like a man. And then the other extreme, because there's so much. You know, fashion is so the turnover, and because you know America is, is, is a consumer society, and it's getting like that in Europe, unfortunately. But 
uh, all these cheap clothes that are not well cut, that are not good, that are not fitting well. And uh, women had a hard time. I think I would say the last five years has been some progress. Some designers got it. But we need, we need designers, and maybe because more and more women are, are going into designing, we need designers who understand that, you know, a woman has to go to work and is presentable and can't afford to buy, you know, a $4,000 Chanel suit, but could use something that is well-made and that is affordable. And and we can't find that. I'm, I must say when I worked, I would, you know, I, I'm not a good shopper, but twice a year I would go to France and in the little street in Paris where I lived, I, in, in half an hour I could buy the two or three outfits for the year. And they were always, you know, they were classic and timeless, but, you know, I could wear them for work and if at night I had to go to a restaurant or to a concert or the theater without being able to change, I knew they would be appropriate. And so... We have that much more there because uh, people don't have the amount of clothes that we have here. You know, we, we, we don't spend generally the kind of amount on clothes. We spend it on food and travel. So, so there is a difference, but I, I think it's changing too slowly in my, in my book, but it's changing. I'm glad to hear that my observation has validity because it's either this or it's that. And I haven't seen this transformation yet of yeah. style, professionalism, and femininity coming yeah, it's, together. It's the in-between that's kind of lacking, you know. It's either too casual or too, like, tight, colorful or, you know, not not really business-looking. Uh, you know, some of the outfits you could wear at the beach, and now, especially with the with the amount of uh, overweight and obesity, you know, a lot of designers are. Um, there's no something tailored. It's everything is like like you look like a, a burlap bag. You know, it's like no sh- shapeless, <laughs> and so it looks. It, it doesn't look good. You know, you've you've got to have some kind of, of form. But on the other hand, you know, you don't want an opening that's like shows half of your breast or uh, pants that are so tight. I mean, you know, it's it's that kind of um, middle ground that that's not yet understood maybe by designers. There's not much you leave out in this book, Women Work in the Art of Savoir Faire. You didn't leave a thing out. I mean, I checked. I read your entire book. <laughs> You just hit every single delicacy, every single nuance that could be found. I thought it was a wonderful book. By the way, French Women Don't Get Fat was one of the joyous books I've read in my life. And this book was wonderful, too. How are you today? What is new in your life? What are you doing today? And how often are you visiting that market in New York and buying fresh food? Well, actually, I went uh, went yesterday morning because I just got back from France and I wanted to see what was there. You know, in France this year, we're really spoiled because we had uh, an amazing spring. And so, of course, in Provence, it's it's apricot and cher- cherries and strawberry season. And they're so sweet. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, I have to go back to my childhood to finding a fruit that was so amazingly sweet and luscious. And here, it's we haven't quite come to that yet. The strawberries were a little bit watery. Um, things like peas and asparagus and, you know, the vegetables were great, but we haven't, we haven't had good tomatoes left yet, and I think we need another few weeks. But I'm going back next week, so I won't see them until I come back after Labor Day. I was speaking with a very well-known doctor who was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine, Dr. Richard Lippmann. He wrote the Mm -hmm. book, Stay 40 Without Diet and Exercise. He's really an anti-aging genius. And we started to talk about France, and I said, I want to go to Provence. And he said he had lived there. He goes, oh, my God, the food, the fresh food in France. You will not believe it. There's nothing like it. Yes. He went uh, on and on. He just couldn't stop talking about how beautiful it is and how incredible of a sensory nourishment it is. Where is your favorite place in France? Well, Provence, where, where my family, where I live. Uh, and now I spend the summer. And it's really, it's really uh, I must admit that um, nothing tastes the same anywhere else. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> 
I, I, I can't. And people who come, you know, I have, I have visitors from all over the world, a lot from the U.S., obviously. And so many friends have said to me, oh, my God, I can never t- taste another peach and, and not think about the peaches we had at your house or the strawberries or the fresh goat cheese or the, you know, the ratatouille. Because even, even the, of course, I'm in a huge farm area and you get things, you know, uh, picked at, at perfect ripeness. And two hours later, you have them at the market or you go to farms and buy a basket and so that's very crucial, you know. Buying local is something we've always done in France, and it helps a lot, you know. Does your husband love Provence? Oh, he adores it. <laughs> Unfortunately, he has to he has to work, and he does some back and forth, and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of exhausting. But uh, yes, he, he he loves he loves the, the the life there, and he loves, of course, he's a great gardener, and he loves the the flowers and the lavender and the rose bushes and, of course, the the irises in the spring and the almond trees. And it's for the senses. It's like it's like one of the greatest places on earth, I mean, in my book. I have an idea. Yes. Why don't you get your husband to bring you into his company so you can explain to his company why it's in their best interest to give him six weeks of vacation time? <laughs> Well, you know, he is a, he has a, he's president of a university, and he has uh, uh, about twenty thousand people. Um, uh, that would be hard to convince that he, he has to work during the summer. He's not a professor anymore, so he has to be there. And you know, his campus is all over the world. He has to travel a lot, and that's that's. But, and he loves it, you know. But. Uh, when he's in Provence, it's really, you know, recharging the batteries and it's total escape. And uh, he cooks and he goes to the market. He loves to go to the market and, uh, uh, you know, welcoming friends and, and sitting at the table and having these wonderful meals three hours in the evening when it's light until 11 o'clock. And it's just wonderful. How long do you go to Provence for? The whole summer? Uh, yes, I just came. I we had I had some commitments for some charities and and dinner parties this week, so I had to come and some interviews. Um, so I had to come back for a week. But uh, usually, um, you know, we leave like um, for Memorial Day, and I stay until before Labor Day. So I'm really spoiled, and I really uh, cherish my my new life that entitles me to. Uh, stay in a home, which, you know, before I could only go for like a week, a year, and uh, a week doesn't, just doesn't do it. <laughs> and all the activities, too, you know, the biking, the swimming, the walks, I mean, it's just splendid. Well, I look forward to meeting you in Provence. and I'm my guest. <laughs> I'm so, so delighted. I have many friends. <laughs> this summer, I have friends from... Let's say from New York, from Chicago, from not at the same time, but from San Francisco, <laughs> uh, Vancouver. I have a lot of friends coming uh, Toronto. Um, so far, that's it, and and of course a lot of friends from Paris and Europe and and even Asia. So uh, we have an open house, and we love to entertain, and we love to show them what I call my Provence, which is which is. You know the Van Gogh area and the the Alpes, the end of the Alps, and and it's really glorious. I think I understand why you're considered the high priestess of French lady wisdom. <laughs> no, please, <laughs> I don't know. I yeah, I, it was a French French man. I think we say that. <laughs> uh, I I don't know when people. I, I should erase it from my. Um, of course, you can't erase anything on the internet these days. But <laughs> so many people use that and say I'm anything but a priestess. I'm not. You know, I don't um, like to impose my views. I just like to suggest and share and hope that. I can help people making decisions or making changes or taking risk and and especially young people because I still do a lot of mentoring and actually many of my young mentors are visiting. Uh, One is an American girl who just got her big um, job of her life working for a French company in Paris and is now in an intensive training class to, to learn to improve her French and will start uh, working for a French company. is very happy. So she's going to visit me uh, one weekend this summer. So it's it's very nice to see that uh, 
you know, what I call my, my small French quiet revolution to make a difference in people's lives. You certainly do. And thank you so much for sharing your time and your energy and your life experience with us, both in your books and well, with your you. voice. And we welcome you back. I'm going to read another one of your books. Well, now I have to write a few more books <laughs> on your radio show. <laughs> but I just so appreciate you coming on and sharing, and it really does make a difference. Thank you, Mireille Giuliano, for being our guest today. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Mireille Giuliano. She is the former CEO of Clicquot and is the best-selling author of French Women Don't Get Fat, The Secret of Eating for Pleasure. Today, we talked about women work in the art of savoir-faire, business sense and sensibility. She's also written several other books, The French Women Don't Get Fat Cookbook and A French Woman for All Seasons. You can reach Mireille by going to Mireille Giuliano, M-I-R-E-I-L-L-E-G-U-I-L-I-A-N-O.com. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Kim. It was a great pleasure. Au revoir, madame. Au revoir. Have a nice summer. You too.